Okay. Uh, you probably turn it down a little bit more. Does that seem okay now? All right. All right. That wasn't a gimmick to get your attention, but it worked. So keep it in mind for future reference. How do you know if God's life lives in you? We saw a few weeks back from 1 John 1 that your relationship to sin has changed. You keep putting it off and you find cleansing through Jesus' blood. We saw then from 1 John 2 that your relationships to others have changed as well. You love your brother. You fulfill the old and new commandment to love your neighbor as yourself and especially fellow believers. Today's passage gets into a third test to see whether God's life lives in you, or as we might more commonly say it, do you have eternal life? The third test is that of your response to Jesus Christ. Do you love the world, do you reject Christ, or do you confess and abide in Him? When the Spirit and truth abide in you, you abide in Christ. The first point we see here is that if you love the Father you won't love the world. If you love the Father, you won't love the world. Verses 15 through 17. Loving the Father and loving the world are mutually exclusive. John commanded his readers not to love the world or the things in the world. What is love? Love is uh, something that's demonstrated in action. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? Uh, what are you devoted to? What values do you share? What do you care about? Those things show what you love, right? Somebody loves the Tigers. They're going to know the stats of the players. They're going to go to the games. They're going to have the jersey. They're going to talk about it with their friends. They're going to spend money supporting the team. Somebody who says, I love God and gives God five minutes a week, but gives the Tigers 20 hours a week, which one do they actually love? And there's a degree to which maybe you can love both, but which one do you love the most? That's really the question God is asking. Because, you know, when Jesus said, anyone who loves father, mother, brother, sister more than me is not worthy of me, he's not saying, even though he states the specific phrase, hate father and mother and so forth, I don't think his intent was to say, because God says, love the ones around you, and that's the, the second greatest commandment. I don't think he's saying, go out and do things that are actively harmful to them, but he's saying, compared to your love for God, your love for anything, anyone else, ought to come a very distant second. It ought to be as hate. World here probably does not mean ground or dirt or physical things. Um, the word world is used in different ways throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's used of a world in terms of um, the entire universe. God made the world and all that it contains. Sometimes it's used to refer to a subset of the people who live in the world. Sometimes it is used as here to refer most likely to the way of this present world. What are natural patterns of thinking and feeling and doing? What is the character of the system of this world in opposition to God? Those things which are temporary, and particularly those which are sinful, as we see in verses 16 and 17. 
Now, these things obviously take place through our physical bodies. We cannot really express or manifest, as we see in verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in an intangible way. But the fact that those things are expressed through our physical bodies does not mean that our physical bodies are the reason for that. And that's a very important distinction because some of the cults and misrepresentations of Christianity have said, well, if we just get rid of the physical body, everything is great. Or what I do with the physical body doesn't affect me spiritually, so I can sin with my body but not with my mind. And both of those are errors that should be rejected. John is saying, don't love the things about the world that are natural, set in opposition to God, that are temporary, and that are sinful. Why not? If you love the world, the Father's love isn't in you. This is perhaps a trivial example, but if your mom makes a home-cooked meal, but you've filled yourself up with snack cakes and chips, what do you not have room for? You don't have room for the home-cooked meal. Vice versa, if you just had the home-cooked meal and you're walking through the grocery store, you don't want all the snacks that they're offering you because you're full of something else. If God's love fills you, you won't have love for the world. If love for the world fills you, you won't have love for the Father. They displace each other. Loving the world and loving the Father come from different sources. All that is in the world, the sinful patterns of this present day, result from a world system opposed to God, ruled by Satan, designed to lead you astray from God's way. Some have rightly correlated these sins described in verse 16, or what people might call worldliness, to both what Adam and Eve faced and what Jesus faced as far as temptation. I think that's a right parallel. What did Adam and Eve face by way of temptation from Satan? It looks good, it is desirable, it will make you wise. So they took it, and they tasted it, and they fell into sin. What about Jesus in the garden? We'll see the correlation with those as well. What does he mean by these three phrases, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life? Lust of the flesh, I think, correlates with what we see, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 where Paul describes how we lived before Jesus. Among them, the sons of disobedience, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, under God's wrath, even as the rest. Lust of the flesh is primarily physical appetites, often for sexual sin, but also for food, gluttony, or for substances, such as drunkenness. How was Jesus tempted in this way? Satan said, make these stones bread. Now here's the thing. These desires are not in and of themselves sinful. A desire to eat something is not in and of itself sinful. A desire to drink something is not in and of itself sinful. A desire for physical satisfaction sexually is not in and of itself sinful. It is the way and the circumstances in which it is fulfilled. God has said, enjoy food, but don't be gluttonous. God has said, enjoy what you drink, but don't be ruled by it. God has said, enjoy physical pleasure, 
in the boundary and the relationship and the sanctity of marriage. Anything outside those boundaries, anything excessive beyond those boundaries, is when the lust is corrupted according to the pattern of this world and the schemes of Satan and leads you astray from God. And John says you cannot be ruled by physical appetites the way that the Gentiles are ruled by physical appetites. Lust of the eyes. Probably greed. Proverbs 27 talks about those things which are never satisfied. Greed is often for money, but includes envy of anything around us. What does the commandment in the Old Testament speak about coveting that Paul picks up on in the New Testament language? Don't be envious of those around you. What does James say? Don't be greedy looking at the rich, wanting what they have, um, ingratiating yourself to them so that they'll reward you with all the things that they have. There is a desire that says, if I can have this possession, this person, this relationship, this thing, I will be happy. Christ was tempted in this way. Worship me and all this will be yours, Satan said to him. All the kingdoms of the earth, power, possession, be the prince of all of it. Now, God had already promised that to Jesus after the cross. And Satan said, skip the cross, enjoy the kingdom. Jesus said, no. The pride of life, selfish ambition, self-reliance, divisiveness, self-promotion. Satan's words spoken through the pagan king, I will do this, I will do that, I will do the other thing. We see this attitude at Corinth. I'm better because I have this gift. I'm better because I can do this sin and get away with it. I'm better because of this reason. Paul said that's childishness and that's wickedness. Don't live that way. John says here, don't do that. Jesus rejected the temptation of Satan to throw yourself down and in pride say to God, you have to do this thing for me, which means I'm in charge and I'm more important. Jesus said no. You and I need to consider what these commands are saying. And if your life or if my life is characterized by the way of the world, if we gorge ourselves with food as a reward for a job well done, that's the way of the world, right? Gluttony. The, there's no heavenly reward, so all we're going to get is an earthly reward, so let's enjoy it now and as much as we want and... That's the attitude of our culture today. You can't tell me that it's bad for me to stuff my face and do what I want because it makes me happy. Who are you to say I can't be happy? Our culture is full of both extremely explicit and a whole bunch of degrees all along the way of pornography. For women, it tends to be more verbal. 
romance novels talking about the hero's muscles and things about his body and how strong he is and all these sorts of things. For men, it tends to be about pictures. Look at this woman and look at these parts of her body and be attracted to them and enjoy them without any sort of relationship. Use her as an object for your pleasure. And sadly, both things are far too common in the church. And I would venture a guess that if not every one of us, that a whole lot of us sitting in the pews here today have either encountered and or said yes to one of those temptations. That's the way of the world. The world says, if it feels good, do it. Don't worry about what God has said. What else does the world say in this idea of the appetites, the desires of the flesh? It says, go live with the person that you love. Don't have to marry him. It's all good. If it makes you happy, who is someone else to come along and say, you can't be happy? What about for those of you who in the next five to ten years are looking toward marriage? There tends to be a progression. You fill your mind with ungodly ways of looking towards someone else of the opposite gender. The next step is to say, I can pursue a relationship with someone who doesn't love God. How did that work for the Israelites? They were led astray from God. Solomon married foreign wives and they led his heart away from God. So if you have a wrong view of of men or women, depending on which you are, and if you have a wrong view of what the next step is leading toward a relationship with someone, then the only natural outcome, not the godly outcome, but the only natural outcome is going to be if I've said I don't care that God says I should keep my heart and mind pure and I don't care that God says I shouldn't pursue a relationship with an unbeliever, then I'm not going to care that God says I shouldn't live with that person once I've found them. And you and I can justify in our minds any manner of reasons why this person is the person. I really love this person. This is the only person that's ever going to love me. And here's the strange reality. There are thousands of people that you could marry. And when you marry that person, that person becomes the one person God wants you to devote your life to after him. How do we understand that dynamic? It means that we should not be driven by the fear that we're going to miss out on the one person who's the only person for us. But it also means that having made a commitment to that person, we are then bound before God to fulfill all of the responsibilities and privileges of marriage to that person, so we ought to choose wisely. And I just say this because I was, uh, 
I was talking with my parents while they were here about people that I was with in high school. Uh, uh, like, we were on the soccer team together. We were in ensemble together. We, were, we did a lot of stuff together. Here's this guy who went off, married a guy, living with him as still as far as I know. Here's this girl who went off, got taken advantage of by some guy, now been in a string of relationships, now on, on her own. And there were good stories too, right? But there were a lot of people who were with me in the Christian school, grew up in the church just like me, heard a lot of the same sermons, and went their own way away from God. And we'll talk more about the reasons for that in a moment. But I am burdened for the teens, the kids of this church, that you would not make the same mistakes that my friends did and love the world and adopt the patterns of the world's thinking and the ways of the world living because if you do, it shows your heart isn't devoted to God. And that applies to the adults as well, right? This is not just a progression that happens for teenagers. It's also one that happens for adults. And here's the, the pattern that happens for adults when it comes to sins of the flesh, lust of the flesh. I'm going to compare my spouse to somebody else's. Negatively. She's not as pretty as I thought she would have been. He's not as hardworking as I thought he would have been. Our dreams together aren't working out the ways I thought they were going to. I wish that I had this instead. And the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes combine and hearts wander and love that was committed to one person is now dispersed in the streets to people online and people around the corner and old friends from high school, and whoever else it might have been. And God says, that's the way of the world, not the way of the Father. But it doesn't stop there with the physical appetites. It continues with this idea of greed. Christmas gets over, and you're already making your list for your birthday, for the next holiday, for Christmas next year. Because the problem was never about what you got. It's about the bottomless pit of desire in your heart. It's the way of the world that measures success by what's in your bank account or what you see when you look around your house instead of the way that God measures success. It's the way of the world that's jealous because that person has this thing for family relationships and I don't. It's the pride of life always talking about yourself and putting other people down. And it is not in and of itself sinful for you to have an online social media presence, to have a Facebook account or Instagram or watch YouTube videos or all those sorts of things. Let me just talk to you a second about the ways that those things are mostly not helpful to us. When you look at someone and how their life compares to yours, you feel like you have to one-up them, that's the pride of life. You're jealous of what they have, that's the lust of the eyes. You look at their appearance of their vacation photos and you're like, wow, nice body, that's the lust of flesh. None of those things are helping you draw closer to God. 
for some of you, for perhaps most of us, we need to greatly restrict or completely cut off our access to those things because they provoke in our hearts lust and greed and pride. And we should be spending a lot more time, and you're probably going to think I would say reading your Bible, and I'm not saying that shouldn't be part of it, serving people around us and demonstrating the love for God the Father through love for neighbor because it is very hard for you to demonstrate lust when you are serving someone in love. It is hard for you to demonstrate pride when you are humbly helping someone. It is hard for you to demonstrate greed when you're giving of yourself to someone. And that starts in our families and moves out to our neighbors, people in our church, and then, you know, the lost around us. If these things characterize our lives, well, before I say that, I talked about a lot of actions, but the actions are the symptom. And it's really easy in the context of church for us to park on the action and say, well, don't do this thing, and don't think this thing, and don't feel this thing. But the ultimate root cause of all of that is not the external manifestation of it, it's our heart. Again, is your heart full of love for God, or is it full of love for the things of the world? If you have a wrong heart, you will have wrong actions. So it's not enough just to say, we're going to restrict the actions, right? So going back to the, the lust of the flesh idea, there are filters that you can put on the internet so that bad keywords don't come up. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. I'm saying that does not fix the heart issue. Practically, should you be, if you uh, don't do stuff online, should you be looking through, let's say, the Cabela's catalog for some sort of outdoor gear that you want? Or, I know the Sears catalog isn't a thing anymore, but the equivalent of, let's say, the Harbor Freight ad for the next tool that you want to get. Or the the Kohl's flyer for the next thing you want to save for on clothes. So if it's not an online thing, you say, all right, well, I'm just going to, when it comes in the mail, I'm going to unsubscribe from it or I'm going to throw it away. And then, I'll, great. That probably doesn't fix the heart attitude of wanting and wanting and wanting. It just removes the immediate outlet for it. So if you and I are going to replace love for the world with love for the Father, there has to be a dedicated and determined and ongoing effort by God's grace to root out those ungodly desires. Think about sin like a mulberry tree. I don't know if you guys have ever had to dig one of those out. When the tree is about this tall, the root's about this long. When the tree's about this tall, the root's about twice as tall as me, it feels like. It has a massive, thick tap root that goes way down. I have one by my fence. Cut it to the ground, back as tall as the fence, before the fall. In three months, it regrew from the ground to be four and a half feet tall. Sin is like that. If you just cut off the top branches, right back up again. You and I have to dig down and dig down and dig down and, and say, all right, so what is it that, that, is, that is, here's the fruit or here's the branches or here's something that shows me there's a problem. What's really the core issue, right? The core issue is not, I look at my bank statement and I spent $500 at Harbor Freight on tools I didn't need. I'm not saying that I did that. 
Not saying I've never done that either. <laughs> but that's not the that's not the thing. It's the solution is not, well, I'm just not going to spend five hundred dollars on things I don't need. The solution is, by God's grace, the desire to want and want and want has to be broken. I have to say, God, thank you for what you have provided for me. And God, help me not to do this. And instead of, as a lot of couples will do, the husband will go hide what he's doing over here and the wife will go hide what she's doing over there, there needs to be open and honest communication between the two of them about what money is being spent and how and all those sorts of things. And maybe you bring a brother or sister in Christ alongside and say, hey, I'm really struggling this. Will you help me ask me honest questions like how much money did you waste on this thing and pray for me regularly about it? and those sorts of things. And all those things together are ultimately, even in that, is not going to be effective until God's Spirit does the work to dig down and cut that taproot and dig down and pull every last fragment of that thing out. And that is a lifelong process. But when you hear love of the Father versus love of the world, don't think that that's an easy task. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because the way that we respond to these things is sometimes overly sympathetic because we face these same kinds of sins. God's not saying that we should hate the person who sins in these ways, and if the person doesn't know that a particular thing is a sin, we should patiently warn them. But having given that warning, and, and in the right spirit... There has to be an urgency and a stressing of the need to repent and to show the person, whether it's ourselves or someone else, that if you claim I love God as the same time as you live in these ways, you do not love God. You're lying to yourself and everyone else and you're in danger. We'll talk about the danger in a moment. Why? The sins of the world do not come from the Father. He is not the author of sin. Verse 16, all these things are not from the Father but from the world. If we're going to follow Him, we have to repent of such things, the attitudes and the actions of the world, all of it together, and we have to instead love the Father by loving the Son and walking in obedience. Why does this matter? Loving the world and loving the Father end in radically different results. It says the world is passing away and also its lust. And I think we read that and we're like, well, it's just sort of slowly fading. Think Second Peter. This world will be purged with fire. That's a serious thing. That's a sobering thing. That's something that we do not want to be going through because we are against God and loving the things that He hates. In contrast, and here's the hope, the one who does God's will, it says, lives forever. There is eternal life for those who love God. There is eternal destruction for those who do not. The way of the world is temporary leading to destruction. The way of God is eternal leading to life everlasting. So in these verses, John has revisited the first test. What's your response to sin? And he's developed out from it a personal response. How do you relate to other sinful people and the sinful world as a whole? You can't love God in this present world. Everything in this world comes from rejecting God. So if your life is characterized by lust and pride, you can't claim to know the Father. If you do your own will or that of the world instead of God's, you will not last. But if you do God's will, you have eternal life. If you love the Father, you won't love the world. 
There will be no room for sin when your heart is devoted to God. It's urgent to get this figured out because of the eternal consequences. We move to the next section where we see, if you abide in Christ, you won't deny Christ. John here gets into the third test of eternal life. This is not a test of knowledge, as some people have said, because it's not about what you know. You can know things and still fail the test. It's not even a test of belief in an intellectual sense. I believe and I assent that this is true in my mind only. Because there are those who intellectually said, yes, Jesus is this, and yes, I believe that. And then they left. This is a test of your response to a person, to Jesus Christ himself. If you have a relationship with him, that is what causes you to pass this test that John lays out for us. It's a fairly simple test. Those who abandon Christ are antichrist. Those who abandon Christ are antichrist. Verses 18 and 19. It's the last hour. It's evident because many have appeared who oppose Christ. You've heard antichrist is coming. Many antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. Where did they come from? Verse 19. They went out from us. We think the Antichrist is going to be the Pope or the leader of some other world system opposed to God. But it says, the Antichrist that you and I primarily need to be worried about are those that arise from within the fellowship itself. That it could be you. That it could be me. The going out shows they were not truly followers of Christ. These were men like Judas, Iscariot, and Demas, who loved money and other things of this present world. There had to have been a moment in their lives, and it seems clear that there was, because the rest of the disciples hadn't figured out who it was that was going to betray Jesus, where Judas genuinely was convinced, I'm one of the disciples. I'm doing what he wants while at the same time stealing from everybody as he holds the money bag and plotting to get more money by betraying the one that he is at least outwardly claiming to be the Messiah. How can there be that degree of blindness and inconsistency and all of those sorts of things? Look at your own heart. We have those moments in our lives too. We curse men and bless God with the same mouth. We hate this person and love that person at the same time. We have greed, but we say we want to give all that we have to God. We have lust, but we say we're walking in the purity of the faith. We have pride, but we say we humbly serve people around us. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil that would let us sit in that kind of hypocrisy and say everything's fine. What about Demas? He serves alongside Paul. He potentially was doing miracles. He's probably preaching the gospel. We don't know all the specifics of his ministry, but the the fact that Paul lists him as my fellow companion and then says he's forsaken me means that everybody thought he was one of them.
We want to get into arguments about whether this verse says you can or can't lose your salvation. And when we do that, we don't let the weight of it rest upon us that this is a sober warning that every one of us should not sit content and say, everything's fine, I have nothing to worry about. Long time ago, I got a check mark, check mark on the are you going to heaven box and everything from there on out's just a guaranteed thing. Now, do I believe that God secures the profession of faith for those who genuinely belong to Him and that He will not let them fall away for the whole course of their lives? Yes. But if we stress that too much, we fail to heed the warnings that keep us on the path. Don't ignore the warnings because you say, well, you can't lose your salvation. Because I think there's a fair number of people who think they can't lose a salvation they never had in the first place. Those who abandon Christ are anti-Christ. In contrast, those who know the truth about Christ confess the Son. Why? Because the Spirit and truth abide in them. We see this in verses 20-25. through 25. Truth and the ministry of the Spirit are closely linked in John's mind. He says, you know... But this is truth, not just facts. And note what comes first in the verse. You have an anointing from the Holy One. It doesn't start with knowledge. He starts with that God dwells with you. Acts 10.38 says this, You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed Him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. John 14, 16, Jesus prayed for another helper to come. In Acts 2, that helper is poured out. There's a message I'll send to you later that I think does a great job of explaining this idea that as Jesus was anointed by God for the ministry God gave him by the power of the Holy Spirit, so too he anoints those who are following after him as God's people with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the anointing that he's talking about. The anointing that they have, the truth that they have, these are not new ideas. What is happening is the anointing, the presence of the Spirit, gives assurance of the truth of the gospel message they've already heard, of the words of the apostles they've already been taught. Verse 21 says the truth and the lie are incompatible. No lie is of the truth. But what is the lie that he doesn't want them to believe? Jesus is not the Christ. Jesus is not the anointed one come from God. That's the lie that's being proclaimed to them. And John says, don't believe that. What is the Antichrist? The one who proclaims that lie. And in it, denies both the Father and the Son. Because if the Father anointed the Son and sent the Son, and you reject the Son, then you're rejecting the Father too. What happens if you deny the Son? You don't have the Father. Verse 23. In contrast, anointed ones, verse 23, the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Anointed ones confess the Anointed One by the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing from God. Because the truth abides in them, Verse 24, they abide in the Son and in the Father. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What had they heard from the beginning? 
the message about Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one from God. Jesus is the Messiah. If that message, that truth remains and is believed and is the foundation of a relationship with Jesus as that Messiah, then they're abiding in the Father and the Son. So what is your response to Jesus? A lot of people have the response, well, he's a good man. He's a great teacher. Or he's a myth. Or belief in him is a crutch for weaklings. Or he's just your buddy. If Jesus in your mind and heart is anything but the anointed one from God, you should seriously doubt whether you have been anointed by God. Because if you know facts about Jesus but don't believe in Jesus personally, you don't have God's Spirit, which means the truth you think you know is no good for you. You may in fact be anti-Christ while thinking you belong to Jesus. You may have already left while sitting in a pew at church every week. You cannot confess the Son unless you have both the Spirit and the truth. It's not head knowledge, it's spiritual transformation that affects the whole person. And why does this matter? Because Jesus is coming back. Third truth. If you have the truth and the Spirit, you won't be ashamed at the coming of Jesus. If you have the truth and the Spirit, you won't be ashamed at the coming of Jesus. What is the promise that God made? Verse 25, eternal life. What is the security of eternal life? These things I have written concerning those trying to deceive you. God's Spirit will guard God's people from error. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. It's not a lie. It has taught you, you abide in Him. John wrote to guard God's people, warn God's people against error. And we can do the same for fellow believers by calling them back to the core of the Gospel. Jesus is the Anointed One from God. That's what John is saying. That's what we should say to other people as well. Ultimately, though, it is God's Spirit who protects God's people from error. Our relationship with God's Spirit is experiential, but it's not just experience. That's where a lot of people had gone wrong. But then sometimes, because there are people who have said it's just this experience, and you have to have this experience to know that you're a Christian, and the experience that you have to have is speaking in tongues, or feeling a particular feeling, or whatever else, we've become very suspicious of that, and we've said, no, no experience, only facts and logic and thinking. And the reality is, a faith that is only feeling and a faith that is only facts is not a biblical faith because the facts ought to promote a, a godly feeling and emotion and passion for God, but the feelings cannot be disconnected from the truth about who Jesus is. And so, we cannot go to either of the two extremes, either... No spirit, because we think the work of the spirit is only emotional and we should reject that. But also not this cold, empty, academic approach to things that as long as they think the right things, everything is good. Because the next step from that is what happened about 40 years ago where somebody says, as long as you and your mind agree with the truth about God, you can live however you want. That's an error, and that's an error. The biblical reality is that we need both the facts and the passion of a relationship with God. 
It is possible, think about this, to become Pharisees in our effort to reject desert preachers. Think about that for a moment. It's possible to become Pharisees in our effort to reject desert preachers. Ironically, God spoke through at least one desert preacher and through a Messiah who was clearly not a Pharisee. Now, what do I mean by this? I mean, when Jesus came, they thought he was just another of these guys out in the wilderness spouting crazy ideas, stirring up the crowds, fomenting a revolt against Rome. And the Pharisees say, well, we know that none of those things can be true because we have it all figured out neatly and orderly. And yes, we have all these arguments amongst ourselves, but we're not way over there with that rebel. The people, on the other hand, thought we're constantly being led astray by crazy ideas out in the desert. But the solution was not to come over here And the solution was not to believe false things. The solution was to realize that empty academic study of the Bible as a curiosity is not a relationship with God. And empty fervor that dies down as soon as the leader of the cult gets killed or does something really weird is also not the way to follow God. But there is a passion of following after God and there is a truth about who God is and those things go hand in hand. We often think that it's our job ultimately to keep people from wandering away or being deceived, but our efforts will fail apart from God's Spirit. Who is doing the teaching in verse 27? As His anointing teaches you about all things. It's so easy for us to have a favorite speaker, a favorite author, a favorite whatever. I'm not saying they're all wrong. There are some people that have studied the Bible a lot longer than I have and can probably share some things that I haven't observed because of just having read the Bible over and over and over again. But... The safeguard, if a new believer comes to you, is not to say, here's my three favorite authors, here's my two favorite books, go look at all this, you're set, everything's great. Because, think about the early church. Philip the Evangelist meets a guy going down to Ethiopia in a chariot. He has part of the Old Testament, maybe more, we don't know. gets saved, gets baptized, goes back in a pagan culture, and as far as we know, and we don't have all of the ins and outs of this, was used by God to help start the church in Egypt in northern Africa. Because there's evidence of that. There's church fathers, like, not in the Catholic way, but church fathers as in like they were important in the history of the early church, who were down in that region, and they either came from Acts 2 or through the ministry of the Ethiopian eunuch, or through both of those plus some other people that got saved as Philip and others went down through the wilderness and into the towns of the Samaritans and all of those sorts of things. So he goes and has very little in the way of resources. 
And God continues to work through him. We, in the American church, have a ridiculous abundance of resources, some good, some bad. I'm not getting into the exact ratio. And yet, compared to those in the early church who had basically nothing, no podcasts, no Christian music, no written copies of the New Testament, we're in sorry shape compared to the work that God was doing among them. What do we need the most right now? Not more knowledge. We need the work of God's Spirit. We need to pray fervently for the Spirit to work in new believers and in old believers and everybody in between because He's the one who is going to teach us and to keep us from error. So are you relying on His work or on your own um, process to keep you from, from error? And please understand, I'm not saying ignore all the resources we have, forget them all, throw them all away. I'm saying the only way that the abundance of things about the Bible and the abundance of copies of the Bible that we have and all of that is going to help us is if God's Spirit stands behind the work that is happening. And so we need to be equally as devoted to praying for the Spirit's work in someone's life as we are in um, all of the other things that we would be prone to do. And that comes to something like, for me, if I get up and I say, all right, here's all these facts from these however many verses, but I haven't been praying for the Spirit to work it in our hearts and lives? God can use it despite myself, but I'm not doing much better than Balaam's donkey in that moment. If you and I say, oh, we're going to go do a Bible study, and then you know, here's all the things of the Bible study, and we've learned all these things, if the Spirit's work is not in it, not going to be much use. So I'm not saying to throw out the knowledge that you have acquired to the extent that it's biblical over however many years of being in church. But what I am saying is knowledge alone does not secure us in our relationship with God. We need the Spirit's work to do that. And I think so many times in church, we're like, as long as you know the Bible stories in Sunday school as a kid, as long as you learn the verses when you get to be in elementary, as long as you don't get into too much trouble and you show up to the activities in youth group, as long as you keep attending as an adult in church and keep hearing sermons and Sunday school lessons and all those sorts of things, you're going to be right with God. Because we've said... Knowledge is the thing. And John specifically says, don't reject the knowledge, the truth that you've heard, but the anointing and the presence of the Holy Spirit is just as important, if not more important, is that present in our lives.
The Spirit guards us from error. Abiding in Jesus, finally, means you're ready for Him to come back in verses 28 and 29. Little children, abide in Him. If you abide in Christ, you won't be ashamed at His return. This should be our greatest fear, that we would be ashamed when Jesus returns. Our greatest motivation. Uh, in our society, we have a concern that people will remember us in a way that we don't want to be remembered. I think I mentioned this to you before. There was a guy whose uh, funeral, I heard that there was a lot of you know, partying in connection with sort of this remembering thing. And, and then on his tombstone, they wrote down his two great passions in life. He loved drinking and biking, like motorcycle riding. That's it. That's the summary of his life. Love drinking and biking. And the combination of the two is, I think, what killed him. We're worried that people will remember us in that way. You know, here's the, the hobby that we liked. Here's the place that we like to go. Whatever else. So we're very concerned, like the pharaohs, about preserving our memory in a particular way. And that's the attitude of a society that doesn't believe in the resurrection. You have to have memories so that you feel like there's something of you that lives on after you're gone into the oblivion. If we believe in the resurrection, we don't need to be overly concerned about how people remember us. Another big thing is, well, we want to leave something for our kids, right? Some kind of legacy, whether it be money or a house or stuff or whatever else. I've talked about this before. You go to an estate sale and you see what your kids actually think of the stuff that you left them. Most of it's not going to matter to them. There's a saying that life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Our greatest fear should not be how will people remember me or what things will I leave for them? Our greatest motivation or concern should be when I stand before the God I claim to serve, will he be pleased with me or not? If we are ashamed of Jesus at his coming, there are two possibilities. One is that we are antichrist and found to be his enemies at his return. And the other is that we've never grown into the relationship that we ought to have had with him, and so we've never moved beyond a sort of cringing fear. I think there's, I think there's examples of this that show that that means you don't really know him. I think there's examples of this that show that you're very immature in your walk with him. Either of those is not a good place to be in when Jesus returns, Right? If you know what he's like, you will be like him. <clears throat> In contrast to those who are ashamed, God's anointed ones become like the anointed one. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And then he goes into chapter 3 and discusses all those things. They do righteousness as Jesus went around showing righteousness by doing good to those who needed it most. Do you pass the third test? 
Go back to the illustration at the beginning. Are you filled with the love of the Father like you'd be filled with the best meal someone had ever prepared for you on earth? Are you filled with the love of the world? And I know we're about to go do snacks, so I'm going to be careful here. But if you feed yourself every day only with chips and cookies, you're going to create for yourself a host of disaster eventually, right? If we fill ourselves up with love for the world, similarly we create for ourselves disaster. Relationship with God is what actually nourishes us, even though there are aspects of it that maybe we don't think we want in the moment. Just like we didn't think we wanted vegetables or this or that that parents prepared for us, right? But that's what we need, love for God, even the parts of it that are hard, not the things that are easy that will destroy us. Love for the world, love for the Father. Those things are opposite. They displace each other. Antichrist and following Christ can't be both at the same time. And then finally, there is abiding in Jesus or not abiding in Jesus by means of these things that he has established. Are you going to be ashamed or are you going to be ready? Are you going to be cast aside or are you going to belong to him? Ultimately, these are all three aspects of the same thing, right? Love of the Father, being for Christ, being ready for his return. Love of the world, being antichrist, being ashamed at his coming. When the Spirit and the truth abide in you, you abide in Christ. Are they? Let's pray. Father, you know how I've been convicted reading these things this week. I pray that all of us would be convicted. Perhaps I should have spent more time on the the hope that comes that you in your spirit have the power to change us, to free us from all of these sorts of things. But Lord, I really feel that in this section, John's weight is on the warning. Don't love the world. Don't be anti-Christ. Don't be ashamed when Christ comes back. And if that is overwhelming, and if that is unsettling, and if that is even heartbreaking in some way, Lord, may the grief of the weight of your truth be the thing that drives us to the joy of a right relationship with you. Instead of letting us be content with a sort of empty happiness that tolerates our sin and goes through life without any uh, sober thinking about what is going on and any deep longing for the work of your Spirit to actually free us from the love of the world that destroys, from the spirit of Antichrist that rejects, from the danger of being found lacking when you arrive and there is no more time to make it right in that moment.
Father, I pray that you would help us to think and to feel and to do these truths by the power of your Spirit. Take a moment before we sing our closing song and just pray before God. Think about these things. Because I am confident, having looked at my own heart and life, that there's something in each of our hearts and lives that we need to grow in in these areas. If you can't think of anything, then pray that God will guard your heart because it's probably around the corner. Or for someone that you love, that you will have to call them back from the brink in the ways that this passage describes.